Fit for Life Radio, your hosts, Gary and Will. How you doing? Here today, we have a special guest, Mr. Robert J. Davis, Ph.D. Don't forget that, man. (laughs) Guy earned his letters. Exactly, I know. I don't have any letters, so I got to say them when I can (laughs) for someone else. (laughs) D.D., dog dad. Uh, Robert, you want to say hi to everyone? Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're excited. We... uh, are on with Robert today. He has a book called Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. And we are excited to dig in. We read the book and I have to say, Robert, <laughs> I, we, like pretty much agreed with everything across the board. Yeah. It was, which is rare, I think. <laughs> and th- this is based on, you know, our experience and in the trenches, it, it was just such a head nod and almost validating a little bit because <laughs> a lot of the uh, if message we preach lines up with the, the book and the, you know, kind of uh, solutions you come up with. And yeah, it was just a great read. And honestly, I haven't read a fitness book in so long because they're so exactly ex- there's so <laughs> so many lies. So I want to know, yeah. Robert. We'll let you kind of tell everyone maybe a little bit about your history and past experiences and what kind of motivates you motivated you and led you to to writing this book. Sure. Well, well, I, it's great to hear. Thank you for saying that. And yeah, I, this is something I'm very passionate about. I have been a health. I'm a health journalist. I've been doing that for many years, covering. Uh, all kinds of different health and wellness issues. I have a personal passion for nutrition and fitness. I'm an avid exerciser. I try to watch what I eat. And as you mentioned, I also have a PhD, so I have an academic background in public health and epidemiology. So in the work that I do as a journalist and in this book and in previous books, I've tried to uh, bring those, uh, that, that background uh, to apply that background to look at studies, you know, because you say we get there's so much crap out there, there's so much misinformation, particularly around fitness and around weight loss and around diet. And so I've tried to, uh, in this book uh, and in previous books, look at the claims, look at what people are hearing, and then dissect the science to, to, to look at what the science actually shows, to look at the studies. And for this particularly, particular book, I re- went through literally thousands of studies. Uh, trying to, again, we know we can talk about this, not all studies are equal, some studies are not good, some studies are great, and trying to really look at them critically and laying out what we know, what we don't know, and trying to help readers make better decisions for themselves. As I see it, my job is not to tell people what to do, it's not to say you should follow this plan or that plan, it's to, but it's loud information as honestly and thoroughly and as objectively as I can so people can decide for themselves what's best for them. Yeah, and I think in a way, kind of that's part of the problem right is people want it to be easy and there to be an exact answer yeah just do this done and as we'll see when we get to some of your solutions there's nuance and the the big picture is you have to do the work right Um, you have to find what works best for you and that's challenging for people because they don't they want it just to be quick and easy. Absolutely. And what I say is that, yes, on the front end, it's going to be harder because you have to find what works for you. But in the long run, which is what really counts here, that's what's going to lead to success, right? Because mm-hmm. if you can find something that's right for you, that's going to, what's going to be sustainable for you over a lifetime. And in, in the end, you know, this is weight loss particularly. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's about finding what's sustainable for you over the long run. 
Yeah, we have a uh, phrase at our gym that's kind of like what we go by, and it's, it's uh, Will's wearing the shirt right now. It says progress over perfection. Yep. And I think something your book really highlights is, you know, there, there is no perfect plan, right? I think a great example from your book is you talk about uh, journaling and tracking, and we'll specifically say food intake, right? Whereas calorie counting can be great. It's a tool, but you don't necessarily have to count your calories or definitely don't have to do it forever, but maybe taking pictures of your food or writing down your food. Um, that's the nuance that I, I really, the big thing I pulled from the book as a coach and, and someone uh, kind of in daily, you know, working with our clients is that that the that it's okay to accept that nuance and that you're not going to have this what's worked for someone else. Oh, so I counted calories and ate this exact amount and it worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else because maybe the someone else has to eat out a lot, right? And then like you mentioned in your book, well, you're not going to be the calorie tracking is not going to be as accurate. So it that nuance can can be the make or break and it's and it's okay you can find another form of of accountability with your food intake that will work for you and be sustainable yeah absolutely and as i talk about in the book you know for many people counting calories they try to do it and it doesn't work and then you know what happens they give up on journaling because it's like this is just mm -hmm. too hard i can't keep up with this i can't yeah. figure out i have to deconstruct the foods i'm eating this is i'm banging my head against the wall so i'm going to stop journaling completely and so when we're forced to do things that don't fit in with our tendencies or our desires or our lifestyles or whatever it is, and we give up completely, that's the problem. So as you say, mm -hmm. tracking can be very valuable, and we have to track in a way that's going to work for us. So if counting calories doesn't work for you, then track in a way, and I talk about other things to track that can be very useful, um, mm -hmm. but don't let counting calories, that difficulty, stop you from tracking completely. Yeah, definitely. We, we've found over the years, yeah, I mean, I, when I first started as a coach, younger coach, it's like, this is what works. This is what you need to do. But now we've learned, hey. Then you realize how people behave. and Exactly. Yeah. You, really, you want to make it as easy as possible, right? So maybe someone, the, the great thing nowadays is everyone has a phone. It's easy to take pictures, right? Super, mm -hmm. super low barrier to to entry there. So we end up finding a lot of clients do great with a food journal, a photo food journal, you know, Hey, snap a picture of your meals. Um, and they think it's so we can see what they're eating and probably pick them apart. But the reality is when people are like, Oh, I'm taking pictures of all my meals. They make better decisions almost subconsciously. Yeah. Without even thinking about it, you right. know, cause they're not going to want to send a picture of seven handfuls of jelly beans, you know, cause they know that's not, probably the the best idea right so it helps them make better decisions that's the real power and like you mentioned in the book of bringing that accountability and tracking into your life and without feeling like it's a monumental task or anxiety inducing which i know it tracking can be for some people which is why they you know give up altogether like you just mentioned right absolutely and you know something else obviously can not only can it help the way you guys are describing as people are eating to think about their food choices, but then obviously the big payoff is that you go back and you can look over time at what your eating patterns are because many people, many of us, just aren't aware. We're not mm -hmm. aware maybe that when we're stressed, we go to the drive-through more often or we eat more fried foods or we eat more junk food, whatever. So, so I or when we're lonely or when we're bored or whatever. And I think writing down not only what you're eating or taking pictures, as you guys say, or and then writing down how did you feel when you were eating it and where were you and what were you doing and recording things like that can really help you go back and look and say, okay, 
how do I, how, what are my eating patterns? What am I doing? What, what are things that I'm doing that I'm not even aware of that I can go back and then now focus on? Well, yeah, it helps you notice trends a whole lot easier. You know, the longer we can document data, um, and we do this for food, we do daily weighing, things like that. It, it just helps you see trends better. And I think when you can take a big picture look, one, it's less stressful when you can look at a year and notice things versus like, oh, I did bad on this particular day. If you can take a really a big step back, then I think that can be very useful for, for people to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And then a big theme of your book is, so we're talking about this process of learning how you eat, when you eat, why you eat, and it is just that, a process, but it's going to help you end in a sustainable place. The flip other side of the coin to that is what most people want. Give me a meal plan. Let me follow this specific diet and cut out all these food groups. And up front, that may seem easier because it's like this hard set of rules. But the reality is it's just not sustainable. Once and you go outside those rules, it's all, yeah, it's all over, yeah. man. And then you feel guilty. Yep. yep. No, I, you know, and there's no question. I think my argument that I make in this book is that uh, approaches like that, I would argue, have made the obesity epidemic worse mm -hmm. and made it harder for people to find ways to have long-term weight control. Because exactly as you guys are describing, what happens is that people follow a plan, they find that maybe it works for them for a month, two months, six months yep. even, and then they find that eventually it's harder to do, and then they beat themselves up and they gain weight back, and what happens, they blame themselves. Mm -hmm. And they blame themselves, and then it becomes even harder as they go forward because they adopt the mindset, I'm a failure, I can't do this and it becomes harder and harder over time. They gain weight back, maybe gain even more weight than they lost, which tends to happen on these diets. And so it makes it even harder over time to manage their weight. So in that sense, I think these diets, again, maybe short-term work, maybe short-term help, maybe for some people they give them a, a kickstart, but I think in most cases, on balance, they're uh, detrimental. Yeah, and it starts to create what we see is you almost then ingrain the habit of this on-off light switch type approach. Yep. And yeah, people don't realize it, but now, okay, yeah, I'm a failure and it didn't work, but then eventually, yeah, chandlery rolls around and you're gonna muster up this, this gusto again, but then you go really hard for 30 days and then you fall off and then you're a failure all over again and you, it, it starts to ingrain uh, it as a, a habit almost. Yeah, and then at a certain point, like that becomes who you are to yourself is like, I fail at dieting. And it's not helping anybody in any way, shape or form to feel like I will never do this because I've, you know, I try my hardest at the beginning of every year and then I fail no matter what. Absolutely. And, you know, this came, I, I've known many people who dealt with this, but it really hit home as I was writing this book and I talk in the book, I have a number of interviews with people who've gone through this and, I, and, and, and how they have struggled with these kinds of diets and these kinds of misguided approaches, but eventually found their own way. But it really hit home as they described their struggles and exactly as you described, adopted this mindset over time that I'm a failure, I can't do this, and, um, and how that made it harder and harder. So yes, absolutely. And, and again, I, I really saw this uh, in, in, in a powerful way from the folks I talked to. Yeah. So Robert, one, I want to mention my favorite part of the book, because I think it's, a, it's an uphill battle, but I think it can make the biggest difference is and this is something we try we've been trying to get this message at our gym which is very hard to do you know the, the physical fitness actual exercise piece of this equation as i think you nailed it where essentially you mentioned the biggest problem is expectations 
are basically wrong. So you mentioned in the book how most people start exercising with the expectation of, yes, I'm going to exercise, yeah, I'm going to sweat, I'm going to burn calories, I'm going to lose weight. And then it doesn't happen. And now, well, well, that's stunk. We hate exercise. Yeah, exercise doesn't work. And then, of course, you're not going to want to keep exercising, right? But the reality is that there's plenty of reasons to exercise. And when you reframe exercise around those things, then you will enjoy it. And then you will be more likely to stick with it. And then you'll reap all those benefits. And that, like you mentioned, because of all these lies, you know, and it starts with, you know, at every corner of the industry, right? From, from, you know, do this thigh master to, to make your thighs smaller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just very hard to get people to reframe their mindset with this. No, and it's something, you know, people are often surprised who know me when they read this in the book, when I talk about the limited ability of exercise to lead to weight loss, because I am an avid exerciser. My last mm-hmm. book, in fact, was all about exercise and the benefits of exercise and the science of exercise. And so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of exercise, but exactly as you say, the problem is that so many people, if not most people, go into exercise with the expectation that it's going to help them lose weight. And I like to say that exercise is the closest thing we have to a fountain of youth. If there were, a, think about it. If there were a pill that could do everything exercise can do, from lower your risk of heart disease, of diabetes, of cancer, to help improve your mood, to improve your sex life, reduce risk of colds, um, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Though we'd be clamoring for that pill, right? We'd all be clamoring mm-hmm. for it. It's remarkable what exercise Absolutely. can do. The one thing, ironically, that it doesn't do so well is to help us shed pounds. But in fact. That's the thing that many, if not most people, look to exercise first to do for them. So exactly as you say, what I really think is important for people to take home, the take-home message is look to exercise to do great things for you to help you feel better, to reduce your risk of disease, to help you deal with stress, to help you sleep better, all these things to improve the quality of your life. And you're more likely to do it and to sustain it than if you go into exercise saying, I need to do this to lose 20 pounds, 50 pounds, whatever, and it doesn't work, and then you give up. One other point I would make that I think people make the mistake is they see it almost as punishment for overindulgence. You know, this mm. formula, you so know, eat less. Literally move. where my brain just went. <laughs> yeah, eat less, move more. So I, I overindulged over the holidays. I overindulged this weekend. I, I went on vacation. So I got to go to the gym now. And so think about what that's saying. That's saying that exercise is something you have to do to compensate or to, 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 to for its penance for, yep. for overindulging. And again, that's such a common way of viewing exercise because of this, I think, false equation that weight loss is about eat less, move more. And again, it results in this mindset of seeing exercise as something you have to do and it's unpleasant and you have to sort of pay the price, quote unquote, for overindulging. And that's just, that's just a un, very unfortunate um, way of looking at exercise that's counterproductive. Yeah, and that's where I think a great tool to help people reframe their mindset is strength training, which you do touch on in the book. And strength training is great, right? Because it's more about, hey, building strength. It gives you something else kind of separate to track. Oh, I was, you know, dumbbell pressing 15 pounds and now I can do 20 pounds. And and that helps people kind of have a process to, to attach to that's separate from just like, oh, I'm trying to do this to sweat and burn calories and lose weight. And um, I, yeah, I was glad you've mentioned in the book, even specifically, you know, a little bit of the importance of resistance training. And you know what? I can attest to that. For many years, I just ran, and, and I knew that I needed to, 
do strength training and eventually I started doing it. And really, I have to say, it is, it, even though I was already an exerciser and already ran, adding strength training really changed my life in the sense that exactly as you say, it became something that I, I could see immediate results almost and I could see how I got stronger and could lift more and, got, and, and I could see the improvements. And it really, going to the gym became something that I looked forward to doing and, and a very important part of my life. So yes, I completely agree with that and I think strength training is beneficial not only f physically, it's a, a crucial part of being physically fit, but also for the psychological reasons, you say. Yeah. So what would you say, Robert, is your biggest pet peeve of all these lies? Like, which one bugs you the most? Yeah, which one gets under your skin? <laughs> I mean, I, there, there are several of them, but one is just this idea that uh, weight loss or weight management is just all, boils down to villains. If only you cut out fat, mm. that'll uh, you know, give you a healthy weight. <laughs> yes. Or if you cut out carbs, or if you cut out gluten, or you cut out sugar, or whatever it is, and we've seen this. If you look at history, and I trace the history of this, you know, in the 70s, 80s, it was fat makes you fat. Eat fat-free foods. What happened? People started eating snack wells, cookies, and oh, all kinds God, of processed. Yes. You know, the market was flooded with these things. And what happened? People not only didn't get, uh, didn't lose weight, but they gained weight, and they we had an epidemic of diabetes. And then you go to the sort of low-carb era, where people the Atkins, the Atkins era, right? Mm -hmm. And so again, the market's flooded with low-carb foods, and people eat those foods. And so we go from sort of lurch from one villain to another, and this idea that you know, your weight can be boiled down to restricting one kind of food or categories of foods. It's such a pervasive idea and it's such a, a, a massive oversimplification of weight management mm, and it yes. gets, gets people distracted. And again, as I argue, makes the problem worse because what happens? They end up eating a bunch of processed foods and those are exactly mm -hmm. the kinds of foods we don't want to be eating for long-term weight management. Yeah. Well, look at the keto diet now. You know, when it first got hot, uh, you know, everyone was you know, eating no carbs and it, and now you can't walk to the grocery store without seeing keto some snacks. keto cookies, yeah. right? And right. keto ice cream. Right. And right. it's like, well, now everyone's right. just back to eating ice cream and cookies all the time. Yeah, it's just a different <laughs> macro <laughs> breakdown. That's it. They don't taste as good. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. I remember, I know for me, you know, it, during the gluten-free phase, one time walking to the grocery store, and this is where this this is your next book, right? I think you should do a book on like food marketing, you know, the marketing oh, yeah. issues. Yeah, because is. I know yeah. you touched on that a little bit. I remember bit. walking yeah. through and seeing a steak, and there's a sticker, you know, on the steak that said gluten free, which is know? technically right. true. It's, right. it's it's <laughs> right. meat, right? There's now that's a whole other subject of people's lack of awareness and education on about food, yeah. right? And but yeah, but these marketing companies, once they see that there's like a dollar to be made, they all in, man. Yeah, they're all in. And the and, other and, one and uh, the heart healthy and ugh. anything and they'll stamp that on and all natural. Yeah. Organic. Yeah, and, right. And these things work. These health health halo buzzwords work. And people, you know, there's a study uh, I talk about in the book where in a mall they presented people with, I think, yogurt and cookies and chips. Mm -hmm. And so they, they said, okay, try these, and th they had a, an organic label on them. And then they said, okay, try the equivalent. They had no organic label, and people had to guess how many calories they had, and people mm -hmm. guessed that the ones without the, the organic label had more calories, even though yeah. they were the same exact food. So, yes, this, this kind of labeling unfortunately wow. works, and people are often uh, deceived by this. Yeah. yeah. You know, something that I, I didn't know, uh, maybe I, I don't know if I was too young when it well, actually, I don't think I was alive when this happened. But you mentioned when the the low fat thing was was big. The government 
like mandated i guess it was you know that these companies needed like 5000 low fat alternatives to foods um by a certain year or whatever that was and that kind of blew my mind how big that movement actually was cuz i know like the low fat craze was huge but i didn't know that it was a huge you know i guess government movement to really push towards that as well and i think that's created a lot of problems these days and a lot of that information is hard for people to unlearn. Like as we, you know, we coach people every single day and interact with them. And how many people still think that fat is the enemy, you know, that are maybe in their 60s blows my mind, you know, or people that are in their 40s that won't eat carbs. Bread is bad. Anything white is bad. And that stuff sticks with them no matter what, you know, new information comes out. And that's uh, more damaging than I think. Most right. people understand. Right. And think about how that translates into food choices. So let's say somebody has a choice between, say, nuts, which we know can be a very helpful snack and a good snack that fills you up, and jelly beans. And they look and say, oh, the nuts have a bunch of fat. Fat's bad for you, so I'm going to eat the jelly beans. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just one example. But I think that we see that all the time where people end up making um, poor food choices or you know, un uninformed food choices because of these myths that are so pervasive. Um, so yes, and, and it, it definitely has a very powerful effect. Yeah. Another similar sidestep is also, so f separate from just the specific food choices, which is something we talk a lot on this podcast and with our clients is about our food environment. And you, you kind of mentioned he, in some of your solutions here, the importance of kind of strategic planning and yeah. shaping your environment uh, you mentioned and I'm, there might have been studies on this I'm sure you had some good info to dive in with but you mentioned how we tend to eat whatever amount of food is in front of us relying on willpower to limit consumption is often ineffective and an example we'll talk about with clients is it's easy to see because yeah if, if I had a bowl of M&Ms right here on this desk I'd be more likely to eat some M&Ms today. Now, if this bowl of M&Ms was across the room, I'd be a little less likely, but still likely. And if it was completely outside of the building, you know, my odds improve even more not to eat the M&Ms. And I, th I think a lot of people don't realize the power of that and that they're not like a bad person because they, quote unquote, lack willpower. It's, it's more about just setting yourself up for success with your, your food environment. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. And that's a crucial part of long-term weight management because, as you say, it's not about willpower. If we rely on willpower, all of us are going to succumb. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's, we're human beings. That's the way we are. So I think, it, as you say, you know, a good example of that, I, you know, and there are several examples I cite. So if you know you're going to a restaurant where they serve huge portions and many of us just tend to eat what's in front of us, um, put aside half of it uh, or split a portion, split a single portion or put aside half in a doggy bag before you go, before you start, mm -hmm. before you start eating rather. And so that way you won't be tempted to eat the whole thing. Or, but, but just to anticipate um, what some of these temptations might be and what some of these challenging situations might be and be prepared for them. And so I talk about different ways to do that. But absolutely, I think that's, that's crucial. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I like to say it's in some ways like, car technology that sort of if you get off out of your lane it automatically steers you back mm -hmm. into the lane and so it's the same way when you think about these kinds of situations so you you have plans in place to deal with them so you know that if you're going to face these situations you don't have to rely on willpower but you're, you're just going to automatically be steered back on the right path because you're you've planned ahead 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's so simple. So simple, but so difficult yeah, for, right, for right. everybody. And it's tough because, like, I want to give this book to, like, every single client. Yeah, maybe and, you will. And then the part of me that's frustrated is knowing that people don't want to hear this stuff, and it's what they need to hear the most, right? That's the hardest part. And And really, that's why I'm excited about this book, because it is a mainstream book, and that... It needs to be, and this is one of the things we're passionate about and why we started the podcast is to talk about kind of, we, we compare it to like, you know, you got to like, you might get your kid to, to eat more broccoli by putting some cheese on it, you know? So we always talk about, hey, we're, you know, uh, just a way to deliver the information that people not, might not necessarily want, but what they, what they need. And that's what I think your book does very well. Yeah, I think it's a good... It's chopped up nicely to where there's, you know, little different bits, the, um, you know, the stories from the people, the, um, the little tangibles at the end of each chapter, which are nice, like the what to do. Um, I don't know. It, it's presented well, and it's, to me, super interesting. Maybe it's because this is just what we do. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. So, I guess my question, because you, you're in, you know, journalism or have been for a long time. Is it frustrating, and I know it's such a wide, you know, I guess wide field, but just how maybe harmful the, uh, you know, journalism and, and media industry can be for things like this with, you know, I don't know, maybe pushing fad diets or the way things are reported or even the way studies are reported with, you know, almost trying to grab a headline with a, you know, not so honest summary of a study. Is that has that been hard for you? Oh, absolutely. And it's something, you know, I, I talk about in the book. And it's something, in fact, I talk to young journalists and try to talk about how to be more responsible uh, and, and have, and when you're covering studies and when you're covering claims about weight loss and nutrition and fitness and other uh, health issues. But, yes, it's a huge problem. And I think it's contributed again. It's been a big contributor to a lot of the misinformation and misconceptions people have. Because, you know, when they see... You know, study shows eating avocado will help you lose weight. Um, what people say, oh, good, I'm going to eat avocados or I'll eat blueberries, whatever <laughs> yeah, the food is. Like it's is. that easy. It's going to be a magical food and it's going to help me. And the problem is that there are a lot of details that are not clear from that yes. headline or even from reading the whole story. It was such as, you know, did they even, what, who did, how, many, how many people were studied? How long were they? Did the Sample size of six. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Did they even measure people losing weight or maybe they just ate less? Well, that doesn't mean necessarily that they lost weight. Did they even yes. look at people? It may have been in rodents. You know, the, the list goes on. I mean, who funded the study? So there are all these questions, all these vital issues that are often lacking from these and, uh, stories and certainly from the headlines. But as you say, they're all about getting eyeballs. And so the editors know that having a splashy headline like that is going to get people to click. But unfortunately, it does a terrible disservice often to the readers. Yeah. And something we've learned, you know, like moderation is a very hard sell. You know, being down the middle is not that exciting. You know, it's not the keto diet or being vegan or something you can like attach your your identity to. And it just doesn't sell quite as much as those extreme exciting things do. So it's kind of an uphill battle to, you know, get people to understand and, and be on board with that. No, that's that's certainly true. And so I think that the challenge for and I've laid out for journalists is how to present information that is going to be science based and helpful to people 
to present it in a way that's going to also get their attention. And that's the ongoing challenge, but it's something that I think it's very important for journalists and others in the health field to do um, in order to counter uh, the, all the uh, sort of splashy misinformation that's out there. Mm-hmm. You know what my problem with avocados is, Robert? <laughs> What's that? They're just so they're so inconvenient. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> you know, like you, you plan you, ahead. You need them to be this exact rightness. So say say whenever I get excited about avocados, like I'm gonna have you know avocado with my breakfast, and that's gonna be my my breakfast part of my breakfast. I like I like consistency, right? But then I can't depend. You can't depend on you, avocado. You'd have to get seven different avocados <laughs> at seven different stages. <laughs> And, it's just, and I've tried to do that before. It does not work <laughs> at all. I'm like, well, this uh, one's more firm. I'll eat this one on Wednesday, yep, yep. and my Monday <laughs> avocado will be softer, and it'll be good. And it never, yeah. they, they're both end up terrible. So, yeah, and, we, and we joke, but that's kind of kind of a truth, right? About especially you have a chapter on uh, quote unquote superfoods, right? Well, wow. if someone thinks they need to eat some specific food. The, but the reality is, what if it doesn't fit your lifestyle? What if you don't right. enjoy it? What right. if, and like it all comes back to, well, it's not going to be sustainable, right? And now you think because you can't make this superfood work that you're the failure, right? And oh, um, I, there's here I go, just failing, failing again. So um, yeah, that's it's people have to to realize that it's about making it work work for you, you know. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, and, 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 you know, we didn't even mention you have to like the food on top of that. Exactly. Yes. We, we interviewed people who would say, well, I force myself to eat, you know, kale or yeah. cauliflower yeah. or whatever because Poor I knew souls. that I needed to. And, uh, and, and you talk about something that doesn't work over the long term. Yeah. yeah. It, and it's, it's crazy, too, because I'm sure you experienced this some. And this is where some of the things in your book were a good refresh for me is – and I and – I, guilty of doing this from time to time i catch myself there's some things because we're always you know reading this stuff and doing it for so long and and entrenched in it that there's certain things you assume everyone knows and you still realize that people some people don't know that some people have no idea so it's like your superfood chapter i'm like people don't know this stuff yet you know and you realize man yeah some people still think oh there's this one magic food if i go eat cayenne pepper i'm gonna lose weight you know cayenne pepper so I bet that chapter was was probably uh, <laughs> n- pretty nauseating to have to, to have to write. <laughs> well, and I, I just know plenty of people. I mean, you, I, one of the foods I mentioned is apple cider vinegar. That's yeah. huge. Oh, you know, oh we've had clients, God. yeah, dude, who 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 just continue to swallow the stuff even though they don't like it and believe you, that it's helping well, them. Now you, they have like the gummies. The apple cider yeah. Yeah. goalie sells gummies yeah. that are full of it, I'll, which just blows my mind. I always I wait a client ask about that, and I was like, look. If apple cider vinegar was this miracle weight loss thing, it would cost yeah. so much more. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. It, so. it, it just – and you know what? I wish that was the solution. If yeah. that's what it was, great. We wouldn't have jobs probably if that was the solution, but it's just mm. – it Well, and I, th- I think the key there, and I tell people, is a lot of these foods, whether it's avocado or whether it's uh, you know, whatever it is, that they can be part of a healthy diet and often are. You know, so I think what's, what, what, what's happened is that uh, these foods that are generally healthful foods and potentially weight-friendly, healthful mm-hmm. foods are turned into magical foods. And so, yeah, again, th- the focus, instead of being on your diet as a whole mm-hmm. and which foods you like and which foods are going to sustain you and which foods are healthy, these Be- foods are singled out as having some kind of magical properties. Yeah, and if you yeah. don't include and, them, you're missing out. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we can, we can circle back around to the exercise, right? So now the ultimate big-picture problem becomes – 
the expectations, right? Now you ru- or maybe ruin a food and you think it's not worth it, even though it's something that would be great in your diet and you enjoy it, but you had this expectation it was going to help you lose 20 pounds yep. and you're kind of setting yourself up. Yeah, now you're like, oh, well, this didn't work for me, so I'm not going to eat avocado ever again. And that's right. just a very bad uh, place to be mentally and, you know, it's just sets up a poor relationship with food. Um, and there's a million ways to do that that, that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's another big part of the problem is just people's relationship with food is not good. Absolutely. Yeah. Another supersized lie that you kind of went in on, which I was you're, – you're brave for this because <laughs> there's just such a strong contention. But food timing and, like, intermittent fasting – you know, right. that's, a, that's a hot right. thing, and right. a lot of people are very, very sternly defensive on it. Of their fasting, uh, Yeah, yes. we, we're, we are ag- agnostic with, hey, we always say whatever meal frequency and meal timing helps you be consistent and sustainable is what's best Do for it. the individual, right? And Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I don't necessarily say that it's bad or people shouldn't do mm-hmm. it. What the studies yep. actually show is that it can be effective for weight loss, but it's not necessarily more effective than conventional diets. Exactly. And, one, and there's some caveats that people may not be aware of. There's some research, for example, that suggests that intermittent fasting may result in more muscle loss than a conventional diet, and obviously that's a bad thing that you don't want. So, so the point is that, that I make is that if people do that, intermittent fasting, if it works for them, great, mm-hmm. but yep. they shouldn't, again, it, we've been saying before, it's all about managing your expectations. If you go into this thinking, oh, well, this has worked for all my friends, this is gonna be magical, it's gonna work great, it's a miracle, mm-hmm. uh, then, and it doesn't work for you, or doesn't work long-term, because it's difficult to do, which it is for many people, and then you say, okay, I'm a failure. This worked for you know, the people I saw on Instagram, it worked for my friends, it's not working for me, I'm a failure. It just adds to that sense yeah. of, of, of uh, internalized stigma. So I think that, uh, again, if people want to try it or if they do it, it works for them fine. But I think they should not go into it thinking that it's going to expecting great things. Right. Yeah, we, like, like we mentioned earlier, nuance. There's nuance to all this. And we have clients who have done, yeah, done amazing with intermittent fasting. And you know what? They were people who liked having a little bit bigger meals, right? So, yeah, they skip breakfast. They have a bigger lunch and a bigger dinner and it still helped them eat an appropriate amount of food to where they lost 30 pounds right and then we have some people who enjoy waking up and having breakfast and uh you know having more frequent feedings and they had success but the common theme in all these success is everyone found an approach that worked for them right exactly yep do you think that and and we see this and you maybe have you know seen a little bit more widespread as you've done this over the years people kind of think the mechanism like of a diet is what makes them lose weight like being keto like they think that the act of being keto or the act of intermittent fasting is what helps them lose weight and it's like you know a muddled expectation and just a poor understanding of how all this works um and that ties into what I, i said earlier about just you know how it's represented and you know print media and online and things like that. Um, but I th- do you think that's a big, a big part of the problem. Yeah, and I think often the case is that the science is overstated. So let's take intermittent fasting, for example, um, where the, the science is laid out in terms of, you know, th- changes in the body from fasting. Well, and it, I think that we don't know. If, if it works, if intermittent fasting works for people, it's not clear exactly why. It's likely just because they're consuming fewer calories in the course of a day. But these sort of these mechanisms, scientific mechanisms are laid out as though 
uh, that the answer is definitive when in fact it's not. So people buy into this. Same thing with carbohydrate, the whole carbohydrate insulin model to explain why carbohydrates supposedly are the major villain and if you cut them out, you'll lose weight. This sounds, okay, well, to, to a lay person, oh, well, this sounds convincing, this whole theory, the carbohydrate well, it sounds like insulin it makes model. Sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But if you actually then look at the science, it's, it's, it's not so clear that this is really a definitive explanation. There's some science that seems to support it, but plenty of scientific studies that refute it or that don't support it. So again, I think the media oversimplify what we really understand or what, what scientists really know for sure when it comes to these mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. And you do a great job of that in the book, both Will and I, after we've both read it and then talked, we both mentioned that one of our favorite things was the kind of summaries of what to do at the end of each chapter. Because yeah, people need simple, tangible things yeah. to, to summarize and, and help them. And, right. And well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's hard to do, too, because, like we said, it, it's not necessarily answers people want to hear. They want it to be... Uh, do squats for 30 days and don't don't eat any carbs. <laughs> Add right? cayenne pepper to your water. Yeah. And like then, boom, 30 pounds, baby. Yeah. But I feel, you know, man, you feel really, you read the information, you get the, the what to do at the end, and it's actionable steps that hopefully someone can feel confident. Like, I can do that. Taking, taking with them. Yeah, well, and sir, th thank you for saying that. And one of the things I just w wanted to get across through what I, 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 the reason I did that was to make it clear that it's not as complicated as people are often led to believe. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be a complicated diet where you eat these six foods and never eat those seven foods and do this on Tuesdays and skip <laughs> this on Friday, whatever it is. And, and often these regimens get so complicated and people feel that they have to deprive themselves and do all these things. I wanted to sort of make it clear through these simple steps. These are, let's get back to the basics. These are simple, basic things you can do that science shows can make a difference. And that was really what I was trying to convey there. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like I said, we're, we're almost, we're talking about, because we, we have like a group training type gym. And yeah, whenever someone joins, we want to purchase a bunch of these books and give it to them to read because uh, we spend a lot of time trying to get people to shift their mindset trying to, to undo a lot exactly of these things that are this, so, laid yeah. out in the book so yeah it's it's always an uphill battle for us especially like you know dealing with you know general pop people every single day and it's you know basically when when somebody comes in it's almost like starting from the beginning again mm -hmm. you know like every single person is a refresh of all right we have to help this person reframe their their mind and you know undo so to speak a lot of the programming that's been known over the past 20 30 40 years of their life of hearing stuff over and over that is just not true at all and you know it's it's difficult i mean we're up for the task but it's it's a lot to have to do that right right well but but i'm thank i'm glad you guys are doing it which is great yeah so robert what would you say because obviously the sad thing is it's only getting harder right as a younger generations <laughs> get indoctrined with less activity and more processed food and what would you like to see going forward like what do you think as a country or as a society in general needs to be done or, or if even if it's not like something easy but just what stands out in your mind that's a tough one um <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, glad you, I'm glad you didn't ask me gary <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have a single answer to that question. I would say that, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, if you look on sort of a societal policy level, I think that 
Um, and I, I don't know the mechanism for doing this because you're dealing with First Amendment issues, but I certainly think mm -hmm. the promotion, the food industry plays yeah. a large role in this and in pushing out foods that worsen the problem, that, that yeah. look like they're helping. We just talked about these today. Mm -hmm. These foods that are diet friendly or supposedly healthful that don't have, that are keto friendly or that are yeah. you know, no carbs or no sugar or low fat or whatever. But I think that's a big part of the problem is that these processed foods are that are masquerading as healthy foods are making the problem worse. And so to the extent to which we can put pressure on food companies to market more healthful foods, the problem is that by definition, if they're pro highly processed in a box, which is what they're manufacturing, they're not likely to be helpful. So right. um, I think, you know, and, 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 and at the very least to crack down on a lot of these marketing claims that lead people to believe that the foods are gonna help them. Um, I think, cause that's, that's certainly a, a big part of the problem. Um, the deception that occurs uh, yeah. in leading people to, to gobble up these foods. Yeah, that's a great answer. We, we spend a lot of time, a lot of people feel like they are the problem and very, very like guilty when the reality is there's a lot working against us. And a, a great example, everyone, a lot of clients and people will say, oh, I'm addicted to sugar. And the reality is we'll, we'll kind of spin this example for them. And, you know, no one's really out just buying bags of dominion sugar and just eating it straight up right what how are we really addicted is it's a food typically it's sugar that's also added with fat and maybe food coloring and food flavoring that's all concocted into a perfect amount so that it makes our brain ding right yep. and that's what we're addicted to and it's a force working against us to sell more of those things but then the person doesn't understand really that and they yeah think that they're just a, they're bad and they're a failure, and it, it, they're not. It's it's literally you know an entire industry working against kind of working against our and and knowing how to ha hack our our brains a little yeah. bit. And I, yeah. I think if you compare it to like the cigarette industry years ago, when they used to like act like you know cigarettes were healthy and this is fine, this is good for you, and I think. Food should be treated in the same way. And again, like that goes into some, I don't know, First Amendment stuff and government regulation, which whatever. Um, but I think for us to be responsible, like that needs to be looked into in the exact same way. Because if, you know, we look at how many people die of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, all things that are, you know, linked to, um, you know, being overweight or obese, like, and that are generally caused by over consuming foods, beverages, whatever, um, I think that it is a more of a problem than we as a country, I don't know, want to notice. Maybe it's just we don't even want to pay attention to it because it means that we'd have to change a lot. Um, so I think that that is, it should be treated in the same fashion that cigarettes were years ago when they were, you know, slapped with a Surgeon General warning, things like that. Um, they weren't allowed to say they were healthy anymore or... Or things like that. So that's got to be the solution. Well, part. No, well, well, but I think there's a compelling argument you made. This is you're saying because I think it boils down to deceptive advertising, right? Deceptive advertising that is harming people. So mm -hmm. that's really, to me, what the bottom line is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we need to, as you say, to have greater awareness of that. And there needs to be a standard, you know, for a lot of things. Like we know even like organic. There's not much of a standard for putting that on your product um, or all natural. You just slap right. that on there. You know, right. 
And right. so like, I think having a tighter standard on terms like that and, you know, not predatory marketing would be a, a good a good start for that. But good luck. We don't have enough yeah. <laughs> enough money to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, books like Roberts and, and getting more people to talk. Yeah. And uh, that, I mean, that's our goal with this podcast. Yeah. And I'm it, sure your goal with your writing. And like you said, look at cigarettes now and how you know far we've come. Uh, so I think it will be something hopefully we look people look back on like 100 years and they're like, this is what we were doing and thought back then. So I got I hope so, you know. But well, hey. and, and, and in the meantime, what I hope I can do and, and through my work and this book is just to make people more aware, right? Yeah. To at least educate them so that they can make better decisions for themselves mm-hmm. so that when they encounter these misleading claims or misleading information on food packages or whatever the case may be, to be savvier about it and be able to make better choices. Definitely. Yeah. I, and I, I think, you know, having, a, I guess, an assault on all fronts, so to speak, of different, you know, different. Uh, media types and like you know like we do our podcast we also do in-person coaching you write books um you know other forms of journalism too like you know if you do any print journalism or anything like that the more different types of things we can expose people to with this message the better because so many people consume information in so many different ways that if we can you know continue to put things out to different um different outlets then i think we have a, a better chance i completely agree so, Robert, what is – where are you most active? What's a good way for people to kind of, yeah, get in touch or follow along with, with your thoughts and, and stuff more? I know, obviously, Supersized Lies, Amazon. Is it in uh, – e- we have a hard copy version. Is it in, like, an ebook version? Yes, it's an ebook version. If people want to find out how to get it or more about my work, I have a website, healthyskeptic.com, healthyskeptic.com, and there – they can find out about this book as well as my previous book. As I mentioned, the one before this was on exercise, and I have called Fitter Faster. I have other books before that, so they can find out about those books. Also, I create a series of short videos. I've been doing many, many of these. I do on some of the topics we talked about today, other topics around nutrition, fitness, wellness, um, and, and sort of just debunking claims, looking at claims and then trying to break down uh, the science and show what's true and what's not true. So that I invite people, if they're interested in watching some of those videos, they can go to Healthy Skeptic and find those there too. Yeah, I like those. And I, I saw some on your Instagram as well. Uh, watching those videos are good. Yeah, I was cruising it earlier. So you're the Healthy Skeptic on Instagram as well, correct? Yes, and uh, Healthy Skept, S-K-E-P-T, on Instagram and then Facebook. It's Robert Davis, Healthy Skeptic on Facebook. Okay, cool. And well, we can throw all these in the show notes as well yep. so everyone can, can find them and whatnot. Yeah, so for anyone interested, we'll link to the book on Amazon and all, all of uh, Robert's social media. And we appreciate your time, Robert. And, th- and again, we, we love the book, and we'll definitely uh, – we, we might actually – I think we might buy a, Yeah, buy, buy, buy a bunch a of copies for, for our clients. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's very well done. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's really been fun talking to you. All right, well, enjoy L.A. As always, thanks for listening, guys. If you want to learn more, check us out at CoastalFitnessVA.com or GaryDeagle.com. We'll see you next time.